welcome again to the Colin College Academic Continuity Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Garcia, and in today's podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about best practices as they refer to online education. I don't want to dive too deep into the content, but I would like to talk just in general about some of the challenges that students face when they're migrating from a face-to-face on, uh, class to an online class. Uh, specifically, I want to share a little bit about my personal journey in this regard. So, uh, give a little bit of background. I did my bachelor's at MIT from the years of 2001 to 2005. I did a master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania. And then, of course, I also got my certificate in computer science just last year at Collin College. All three of those institutions provided me with some online resources for my courses, and as a result, it meant that I had to kind of change and shift my approach as a student to those classes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about my experiences at each of the three institutions, and then also talk a little bit more about what your students might be expecting, what you can kind of expect, and how you can best design your class to meet the needs of students and not provide them with this overwhelming environment in which to find their course content. So when I was taking classes at MIT, there were a couple of courses that were attempting to integrate online content in a novel sort of way. The biggest one being my Physics 2 class. And in that class, I wound up getting a complementary piece of software that would eventually become Pearson's mastering platform. At the time, it simply added homework to our weekly assignments that we could go and do online, and it also provided some quizzes. It was pretty straightforward. You would navigate to a portal, log into that portal, and then your assignments for the week would be listed there. You would participate in them, be assigned a grade, and you would just kind of keep in mind that that grade was going to tie into your overall course. There wasn't much else in terms of lecture content or anything like that, so it was it was a nice complement to our class-based lectures, and it added a little bit to what we could expect to kind of see on a weekly basis. So it provided me with a hybrid kind of scenario where I knew every week I was expected to go online and do this, but I still had the comfort of going into class and asking my professor questions if I got caught on certain topics or if I couldn't find the assignment or I had an issue with the assignment. Fast forward to 2007, um, and I had completed my time at Penn for graduate school. Now, while I was there, they utilized certain aspects for their online delivery. Instead of giving us assignments for graduate school, they simply would record the lectures for my courses and post those online as well. So I could attend lecture, I could take notes, and then if I needed to go back and review my notes, study, I could actually go and re-access the video. Now, this of course was a double-edged sword. Uh, It's great to have the lecture content there, but when it's an hour and a half long lecture, if you're taking notes frantically while you're in the lecture, you might not necessarily remember where specific content was mentioned. And as a result, if you have to go back through, you've got to dig through an hour to an hour and a half long lecture 
Twitter to try and find the point in which you remember the content being mentioned. And sure, your notes can act as something of uh, a navigation path for that, but it's important to kind of remember that if you've got this huge notebook full of notes, navigating through them just to get to a point in an hour and a half long lecture to then go scrub through the video and find that point can also be an incredibly arduous challenge, and it just adds to the prep time. Now, I know, I know, as a previous educator uh, from the perspective of a full-time faculty member at Colin, we can't necessarily handhold in everything. We, we should have reasonable expectations for our students, and we should say, you know what, to a degree, from a learning perspective, yes, you do need to learn these things. But fundamentally, from the perspective of online education, there are certain best practices that do make a lot of sense when you're coming at it from the approach of, okay, this is a new form of delivery, and it's going to make it a lot easier for my end users to consume this content if I do X, Y, and Z. So I want to take these two examples, MITs, of me being able to access content uh, for assignment purposes, it being tied into the lecture, and having the ability ability to communicate with my professor pretty easily, uh, that hybrid kind of methodology there. Um, I want to address also Penn's approach of me being able to attend lectures, listen to the lecture, and watch the lecture online following that, but also the challenges that were faced with both of those methodologies. And I want to bring that to light as well with some of my experiences at Collin College. So um, when I talk about online learning, let me preface this too by saying that I assisted and worked closely with the ELC here at Collin when we as an institution chose to migrate over from Blackboard to Canvas. And it was a huge shift. It was a huge ask for our faculty, and we knew that it was going to change the way that we worked on a daily, weekly, monthly, and semesterly basis. Um, there were just a lot of discrepancies in the two learning management systems. I don't want to get into those discrepancies, but what I do want to say is I spent a lot of time in the Canvas guides. Um, in Structure, the makers of Canvas have a huge huge library of documentation that you can go and peruse, you can search, we've integrated it into a chatbot, into a Google search API for you as well, and it makes it super simple to go through, type in a topic as it relates to Canvas, and get answers on how to do that particular thing. So, for instance, if you're looking to build an assignment in Canvas for the very first time, their guides provide you with step-by-step -step processes and images that show you how to do that. So definitely, if you need to, um, you can click on the Instructor Resources tab in the lower right-hand corner of your Canvas course. It's that little red button that has a life preserver. And uh, when you click that and open it, you're either going to get a chatbot view, which should be the first view you get, um, and you can search that chatbot for Canvas questions, but there should also be another icon at the top of that page that's going to have a little book, and when you click on that book, it's going to open up a special window in that tray that has uh, the ability to do a Google search through Canvas, and specifically the instructor guides. So use those resources as well. But my point was, I used the guides extensively to learn more and more and more about the learning management system. And in doing that, I developed a certain comfort level, and I developed a certain 
mastery of aspects of the learning management system to where now when I open up a Canvas course, I can do pretty much anything I need to do without having to consult the guides. But even if I do need to consult the guides, I know exactly where to go, what to look for, and how to use them so that I can navigate through the courses. I'm saying all of this not to toot my own horn, but the real reason I'm saying all of this is because I want you to understand that I had a very high comfort level with Canvas. But the second I signed into my first ever online class at Colin, it didn't matter. In fact, when I signed into that first class, even though the instructor had taken the steps needed to simplify the course content to make it as easy as possible to navigate, I felt lost. And I think that if I had a level of comfort with Canvas as a learning management system, and I felt that way, I try and put myself in the shoes of our students who have maybe never had a Canvas course or have had Canvas courses that vary drastically and dramatically from professor to professor or teacher to teacher because they might even have it at the K-12 through level. And that's a huge, huge level of anxiety that I felt. And so I imagine that they probably feel the same thing. And again, I understand that there is going to be some baseline expectations we should lay out for our students, and I am completely understanding of that. But at the same time, there are some best practices that we can implement as faculty members, as staff members, as educators in general, when it comes to teaching an online class that is going to make it so much easier for our students to get past the initial anxiety stress, and overwhelmingness of the technology and get into the learning. And that's, at the end of the day, the real goal we're attempting to achieve. Our courses are not how to learn how to use Canvas. Our courses are English, they're biology, they're mathematics, they're music. They are all of these topics that made us passionate, that made us want to teach in the very first place. And so... I like to approach that kind of idea that my goal at the end of the day is to share my knowledge with other people. And my goal every day is how can I share that knowledge by removing barriers that would prevent people from being able to obtain it? And that's what best practices really boil down to. Best practices boil down to how can we make it easier for our students to get to the points where they can share the knowledge, where they can get engaged, where that same spark and passion that we had, they can have and they can develop. So I want to talk you through a couple of best practices that I, in looking at the documentation for the ELC, in experiencing Canvas, in developing a variety of courses, have kind of learned, seem to really make a difference for students. So... Let's, let's start simple, and, and we'll just discuss a couple of the topics. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm not going to give you a step-by-step, -step, here's how you do this, here's how you do that. Instead, what I'll do is in the show notes, I will include information on if you'd like to learn more about this topic, go here. And that way, you can just jump to those portions of the show notes. So, let's start with what the students are going to see the very first time they log into Canvas and they go to your class. And I know for a lot of you this has already happened, but 
I want to talk about it anyway because it's a valuable thing and maybe you can go back and enhance your class using some of these tips. So when a student logs into Canvas for the very first time and goes to your class, they're going to go to a single page that you designate as the home or front page in your course. You have the power and the capacity to dictate what this home page is. Now, a lot of instructors feel compelled to make their modules page their home page, and I'll talk a little bit more about modules in just a bit. But I want to talk to you about why you shouldn't do that, even if it seems like a really good idea. Um, and, and just so some people can understand, modules allow you to compartmentalize your course into segments or sections. So you can say, okay, I want to call a module chapter one, and all the content for chapter one will go there. Or I want to call a module chapter two. Maybe I want to label all my modules that relate to exam three with something denoting that. So it seems like a really good idea, but the problem with that is... If a student is logging into your course for the very first time and they have no idea what modules are, they have no idea about what the course schedule is, they have no idea who you are, how to contact you, where they're going to go if they need to sign up for a Zoom session or office hours, seeing a long list of items is going to give them huge anxiety, okay? It, it, think about it from your perspective too, you know, if when you go to read a book, Okay, for the very first time. Um, most of the time, there, there are tables of contents in those books, but there's a good chance you skip over the table of contents until you get to that very first chapter. And that's because you know that that first chapter is where you're going to start that book. The table of contents will help you consult if you're looking for a page number after you've familiarized yourself with the content. But if you were just met with this table of contents right out of the gate and you saw all these different topics and you had no context, that's going to be really, really overwhelming for you. So they know who you are, that you're teaching it. Your contact information, this can be your phone, your official call and email, though I'll talk a little later about why you don't have to necessarily include that call and email. Um... You know, if you've got online office hours, the times of those online office hours, a Zoom link to those online office hours if you're using Zoom, if you're using another service, that information as well. And then a link to your concourse syllabus. Beyond that information, I also like to include either a splash image. This is just a very large image that kind of breaks up the text makes the page look appealing and can be related to the content you're teaching for the course, or it can also um, be you so that they can see, oh, this is my professor, this is who they are. But instead of a, an image, actually, what I personally prefer to do for my courses, I always like to make a welcome video. And it, it doesn't have to be anything that is high production. It can literally just be you sitting in a room, firing up your phone, your computer, whatever camera you want to, and giving your students a brief and warm welcome, saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, um, welcome to this class, I'm really excited. If you want to go in greater depth and you want to talk to them about why you got passionate about your area of study, why you decided you wanted to become a professor, why you love teaching, any of that stuff, it makes them connect with you. The online space can feel very, very isolating and very lonesome. And if you sign into a course 
and all you're met with is text on a page and you don't necessarily know if the professor is fully engaged at that point in time or not, it, it does create the situation where you kind of wonder, am I just another number? Am I somebody who's not going to really be cared about? Am I not going to be taken care of? And that goes beyond just being a student. It goes beyond being a professor. I, I think, you know, human beings by nature seem to be very social creatures in a lot of regards. And so when we're signing up for a course, when we're going to take a class, when we're going to engage in something that we know is going to bring us with other humans, there's a need to some degree to feel that sense of connection, that social aspect. And something as simple as a video saying, hey, welcome to my class. Uh, I'm so-and-so. Here's a little bit about me can go a long way into easing some of the concerns of the student. And it also, it, it makes you a person. And it can, it can definitely remove some of the intimidation factor. Um, even as easygoing as I tried to be from my lecturing perspective, from my approachability perspective, I still found that students found me to be intimidating. And I think part of it is there's this anxiety that comes with feeling like you're going to ask a stupid question, um, that you're going to say something that your professor or your peers might view as um, not intelligent in some regard. And so I think easing concerns, allowing someone to feel connected, giving them that comfort level to explore, to ask the questions, even if they're the baseline questions that you know, maybe you feel you should have this knowledge prior. Maybe they didn't get it. Maybe they forgot it. Maybe they just need to be reminded. Um, and, and fostering that environment can go a long way. So I definitely recommend uh, putting in a welcoming video. You don't have to make it more than two and a half minutes. I mean, you could even make it less than a minute. If you want to go for a challenge and say, hey, I just wanted to do a really quick video to welcome you to the course. You know, if you need anything at any point in time, please follow the instructions below. If you want to make it funnier, if you want to make it a little more serious, whatever you need to do, do it. But it will go a long way for your students. So on our homepage right now, what we're talking about is a splash or hero image. That's an image that's big, bold, related to our content, or if we don't want to have that, having a welcome video, all of our contact information, and then finally, the last thing we'll probably want is to have a big button at the bottom of that homepage that says, click here to get started. And this is going to sound kind of ironic, but that big blue button or whatever color you choose to make it. Sorry, mine is blue in a lot of regards in terms of the courses I've made. Usually my buttons are blue. Um, it's going to take those students to your modules page. So you might be saying, well, wait a second. You just told me not to make the modules page my home page, but here I am with a home page that has this additional information and then a link that takes them directly to the modules page. What gives? I promise I'm going to come back to that in a second. But there's one other piece that is really critical that I want to talk about right now before we get to modules. Um, and that is your navigation panel, uh, the navigation menu in your Canvas course. You've probably seen it. When you log into a Canvas course for the first time, it's really, 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 really long. Um, there are tons of links in there. And the problem is that the way that Canvas is built as a platform 
if we turn on apps and services for the institution, which we do because we want to give people access to as much content as possible to create, the problem with that is that it, um, it adds to the navigation bar. So just by default, your navigation bar is going to be really, really long. Now, there are a couple of ways you can approach this um, that will fast track it so that you can always keep your navigation bar mean and lean. Um, you can create kind of a baseline course and populate that course into all of your new courses. Um, and there are extensive tutorials on this with the ELC. But um, for now, I'm going to just kind of go into the basics of best practices with the navigation bar. I don't want to spend time going through tutorials just yet. Again, I'll link them in the show notes. I'll give you Canvas guides, all of that. But the long story, uh, long story short, I guess, on the navigation bar is... We want to limit it to a handful of links. Now, I know you might feel, okay, um, let's see. I'm going to upload files. I'm going to make assignments. I'm going to make quizzes. So I want to have those three links in my navigation bar. And I'm going to tell you right now, don't do that. Definitely don't do that. Personally for me, the links that I typically have in my navigation bar include announcements, grades, modules, concourse syllabus, and that's usually about it. Um, I don't include pages. I do not include announcement, or announcements. I don't include assignments. I don't include quizzes, and I don't include files. And here's why. Again, from that deer-in-the-headlights view, the very first time I logged into my, my Canvas course as a student, I saw a navigation bar with a ton of links. And the very first thing a student's going to try and do if there's no homepage, welcoming, welcoming them to the course, giving them a breakdown of how everything's going to work, they're going to start clicking on those links. And if those links don't lead anywhere or they lead to, let's say you forgot to remove um, Pearson Mastering, and it, you don't even have Pearson Mastering in your course, students going to click on that, they're going to be taken to a mastering page, and they're going to start freaking out because they're going to be like, oh my gosh, um, do I actually have content that I'm not considering here that I need to um, build out? And that is an issue for, <laughs> for students. So it's something we need to kind of take into consideration. Um, beyond that, though, the more links you have, the, the more flexibility students have to move through your course in a way you might not want them to. So if you've created a ton of assignments um, in Canvas and you've uploaded a bunch of files, and you give access to the files and the assignments links in your navigation bar, students can jump into those and freely see through all your files. They might see all the assignments, and they're going to have no concept of how to move through those assignments, what those files mean, how they apply, how they relate to anything. And it again creates this it creates an opportunity for both confusion, stress, and anxiety. So I guess what I'm really saying is you, you want to keep the links limited because then you can really engineer a way that students can move through your course. So let's go back to those links I said that I keep in my course, in my navigation bar. Announcements, grades, modules, and their concourse syllabus. Okay, so four links. Very simple navigation bar. And you might actually notice it's pretty easy to recognize what those four things are from a student perspective. 
when a student logs into my course for the very first time, if they see announcements, they're going to know exactly what that is. Oh, this must be course announcements. And, and if they don't know, they can click on it and they can see if I have a welcome message or I have an announcement saying, hey, um, your first assignment is due here. This is what you're going to need to do. It's self-explanatory. They're going to understand and I can even provide links that take them to that first assignment. The second one, grades. That's going to probably be the most clicked upon uh, link for students at certain points in time in the semester. And it's very, very clear what it does. Oh, this is where I'm going to go to see my grades. Modules, I feel, might be the most ambiguous to, to students. They might not recognize what that is, what it means. But it's going to make it super simple for them to see kind of what it is if they click on it and it takes them to a page where they have a listing of all their assignments, um, pages, everything built into modules. And then finally, uh, the concourse syllabus, I think they'll see syllabus, they'll click on it, they'll be able to see their syllabus, they can kind of use that in tandem with the modules to make sense of everything. So limited scope for the navigation bar, and it encourages and fosters exploration in a very controlled way. Think about it from the perspective of a website. If you went to, uh, most people know I, I use Apple products pretty extensively, but if I went to Apple's website and I was looking for the brand new iPhone, they're going to have several different ways for me to get to that iPhone, and they're going to have clear verbiage on their website and in their navigation bar that will get me to a page where I can see the iPhone. How frustrating would it be for me if I was trying to find the iPhone and there were a bunch of different links in their navigation bar that I had to hover on, that I had to go and utilize just to get to the iPhone. You know, if I'm, if I'm looking for specific information, if I'm looking for a specific area, if I'm trying to get to something that I know I need and I have to go through, you know, 12 to 20 different items in a navigation bar to get to it, that's going to lead to what's called a poor user interface and user experience. And that is one of the hottest things in software and application design right now is user experience. You know, if you think about any of the apps on your phone, they have a very simplistic navigation bar at the bottom. And the, the, the navigation items in that bar are the ones that you need. If you're in a banking app, there's going to be an account icon, most likely, um, and there might be an icon that's related to making a deposit or withdrawing money. There might be an icon related to your profile. They're going to be very specific, very focused icons that only get you to very specific things as they relate to your services. And then if you want to go deeper than those regular things, there are menus you can navigate to. But on a daily basis, from a best practices perspective, Think to yourself, what am I going to want my students to be doing? Where am I going to want them to go? And how am I going to want them to move through that content? And that should hopefully kind of help you shape your user experience and your user interface from the Canvas perspective. Okay, so we've talked about our homepage, and we've talked a little bit about our navigation bar. There's one final thing I want to talk about there before I get into modules. And modules is going to be the final talking point I have today. Um, so you'll notice that that big blue button that I had there linked to modules, but I also left modules in the navigation bar. And you might be saying, okay, well, wait a second. If you've got a get started button and um, 
and, and that takes students to modules, why even have the modules tab still in the navigation bar? And the reason for that redundancy is, again, decreasing student anxiety. Students are going to approach your course in different ways. It's just human knowledge and, and human nature. Some of them are going to have prior knowledge where they have looked at websites or they've interacted in a system before where they always look for that call to action button, and that's going to have them click there. Others are going to have been trained to live or die by the navigation bar. And so when a student who just by their nature, by their knowledge, whatever it is, has been trained to look for a call to action button logs in, if that call to action button is missing, they're going to be like, I, I have no idea where I need to start, what I need to do. Uh, conversely, if there's a student who has always been comfortable with navigating through a navigation bar, the second they log in, they're going to be looking for that navigation bar. And if they don't see modules there, when they click on that call to action button and it gets them to modules, they're going to have kind of almost this um, panic attack of, oh my gosh, how do, how do I get back here? Like, I clicked on this one button. So if you ever choose to change your homepage, um, that's going to kind of create some issues for them because they're going to be like, well, how do I get back to this this page? I don't, I don't remember. I don't know. So just kind of keep that in mind as you craft and create your homepage and your navigation bar, that redundancy is going to go a long way in ensuring that students, no matter what kind of learner they are, no matter what kind of user interface or user experience they might be expecting, they're going to be able to get back to the content you want them to get to. Okay. I'm going to take a very brief break, and I'm going to come back in a second, and I'm going to talk you through modules. Hey, everyone, I'm back from the break, and uh, we've navigated from our homepage and our navigation bar, and we are officially now looking at modules. So let's talk a little bit about what modules are and how we can use them in regards to best practices. So I've done a lecture on this, and I'll go ahead and post it in the show notes so that you can get to it if you'd like to. But you can kind of think of modules as a way to better organize your content. Essentially, in a textbook, your students are going to navigate through content as it's organized by chapters. And each chapter is going to be related to a specific topic or topics that might be kind of interconnected. So in biology, our first chapter is just what is the study of biology. What does biology mean? Our second chapter is going to be more on atoms, subatomic particles, and then the bonds that can form between atoms and their subatomic particles. And we go from there. So we've got these chapters that represent unified ideas, thoughts, theories, hypotheses, information, and collections of data that textbook publishers and researchers have said, okay, we're going to build this in because it's interconnected here and it's going to lay a foundation for later chapters. Your modules are going to be somewhat similar to that. They're going to represent compartments or segmented pieces of information in your Canvas course. And really, the way you should approach this is you should organize modules by unit or chapter. Some faculty have previously approached me and said, hey, I really just want to organize modules by exams. So I want to have an exam one module, and I'll put all my chapters there for exam one. And then I want to have an exam two module, and I'll put all my chapters there. 
I don't actually recommend doing this for several reasons. Again, in the textbook or whatever you're going to be utilizing in your course, um, you're not going to organize content that way. And the textbook's not going to be organized that way. It's going to be organized by chapters. You, the professor, are saying, okay, these chapters are going to be on exam one. These chapters are going to be on exam two. So then you may be saying, well, I still want my students to know when they log into Canvas and they look at my modules, which chapters apply to which exam. So let's go ahead and start very basically. How would you title a module? For me, from a best practice perspective, the way I like to title modules is I like to title the module chapter one or whatever chapter number it is, and then I use a hyphen. And then I put the title of the chapter, and then following the title of the chapter in parentheses, I put exam one or exam two or whatever exam applies to that module. And this does several things. First, by putting the chapter number, it allows my students to see, okay, this relates to chapter one. So they can go directly in their textbook to that chapter and know, okay, all the content in this module is going to apply to this chapter that I see here in my textbook. So that's the first thing. If you're wondering why I put the chapter title following that, it's because I want the students to have the ability to verify that they have the correct textbook. Yes, I know our bookstore has done a good job of posting what textbooks are needed, but sometimes students choose to go and buy used textbooks, and I still want them to have the ability to find the appropriate chapter. So if they're on chapter one and that chapter is not matching with the title of the chapter that I have listed there, that hopefully will get them to reach out to me and ask, is this the correct textbook? Is it the right chapter? What's going on? And then finally, putting the exam in parentheses following the chapter number and title allows me to tie exams to those chapters. And that makes it easier for my students to see, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what it relates to and when I go to study for this exam, here are the chapters and the modules I need to reconsult. Okay, so we've titled our module. Awesome. Again, Canvas Guides and the ELC will provide you with exceptional knowledge and information on how to go about creating modules, how to add content to modules. But let's go into the module itself and let's talk a little bit more about some best practices there. So when you're in the module, there are several different kinds of elements you can add to the module. You can add assignments, quizzes, discussions, pages, and even files that you've uploaded and created. You can link to external resources. The world is your proverbial oyster, as they say. So how should you go about organizing uh, a module? Well, I'm glad you all asked. So one of the ways I like to organize modules is I like to kind of think of the workflow of the student. How would I want them to work through the content? How would I actually present the content if I were in a face-to-face -face lecture with them? And how can I approach the design of my course and my module in that regard? So one of the things uh, I'm going to start with is, in biology, I'm going to have a PowerPoint. Maybe you have board lectures, I don't know, but if you give your students any resources before they come to lecture, then go ahead and put those at the beginning of the module. And it's worth mentioning that modules also allow you to do two really cool things for organizational purposes. They allow you to add text headers so you can break up content in the module, and they also allow you to indent content. So it makes it easier and more readable, kind of like a table of contents in the module. So essentially what you can do is you could put 
a pre-lecture resources section in your module. So you could just have a text header that says, pre-lecture resources, please view before watching lectures. And that would be your text header in the module. And then under that, you could add files that you uploaded to Canvas. PowerPoints, PDFs, Word documents, whatever you choose to provide your students with. Go ahead and add them there. And if you want to add an indent to them so that they'll appear very clearly under that text header section, then do that. It makes it super organized and easy for your student to see, okay, this is everything related to this section I need to look at, and I need to do it before I watch the lectures. Next, you can create a text header for the actual lectures. Now, I want to talk to some degree on lectures. I know, I know. In face-to-face -face classes, we have chunks of time, hour and a half, hour, two hours, sometimes classes that are even longer than that and we host those lectures, students are expected to sit through the course for a certain period of time. Maybe you have a break in the middle, and then they come back. But all in all, it's a, a one-shot kind of deal. You have everybody come and sit. They listen. You talk. Maybe you've got some engagements. You do it all in one sitting. In online education, you don't want to do that, okay? I know you're going to have your PowerPoint and you're going to be going through some of that content. You might have some breakouts where you do lectures on a whiteboard and things like that. You don't want to put it all into one video that's an hour and a half long. And there's several reasons for this. First and foremost, if you do it in an hour and a half long video, when students go to reference points of the video, when they go to navigate back through that video, like I did in my class at MIT, or I'm sorry, at Penn, um, that's going to create a challenge for them. It's going to make it to where it's very difficult for them to review content that they just learned when they're a week or two weeks out because they're going to have to sit back through an hour and a half long lecture. And that's going to be a huge ordeal to, to have them go back through that. From your perspective, what if you make a mistake? I mean, we're, we're all striving for perfection. And I'm not saying that you're going to make a mistake, but if you do, or if the textbook updates content, or if you just realize, oh my gosh, there's something really cool. I just learned a really cool analogy or an example or something, and I want to share it with my students. Well, you're going to have to either go back in that video and edit it in, which is a whole additional ordeal, or you're going to have to refilm the whole lecture to replace it with your new lecture that has the content added to it. And if you think about it, if you've been looking for something to do, if you've been looking to learn a piece of technology, or you've been looking to learn uh, a new teaching technique in one of your courses, are you more inclined to go find a YouTube video that's an hour and a half long to learn that new thing when it has additional content that doesn't relate to that thing? Or are you going to search for a 5 to 10 minute video that has that content discussed and broken down in very simple to understand terms and only covers the content you're interested in? And yeah, I know there might be some video series, but the important thing here is I think we all agree from a learning perspective for all of us, if we have the ability and the opportunity to go and search for a very specific topic and learn more about that topic, we have the tendency to want to do that. And your lecture is going to be no different. So what I recommend is find logical ways to break apart your lecture into different topics and try and keep the videos for each of those topics to under 15 minutes. Truth be told, five to 10 minutes is typically the best window of time if you can. I know some topics are gonna be so involved, it's impossible.
And don't be afraid to have some PowerPoint lectures, maybe a five to 10 minute PowerPoint session. And then if you want to do a whiteboard lecture, have a whiteboard lecture that the student would move through then in that module. Um, so maybe they download all the resources they need for the module, they review them, then the first video is you talking through your PowerPoint for the first 10 slides, and it's a 12-minute video. It gets the students a little comfortable with that, and then maybe you go to a whiteboard and you do an example, or maybe you narrate over a video or something else where you're talking them through some of the concepts they just learned. What it does for the students is it allows them to take just a subset of their lecture, digest it, see how they would apply it, and get comfortable with that. And then you've got two choices. If you want to move to the next portion of your lecture, you can. But the cool thing about online learning is because you're now compartmentalizing lectures, you have the opportunity to then say, okay, do I want to move right away into the next lecture or do I want to give the student maybe a micro assignment or a discussion board? And you can add in interactive content. So they've become familiar with this concept. They've explored it in the PowerPoint. They've watched your video. They've experienced it in an additional maybe video or some cool thing you found that you've chosen to add right after that PowerPoint. And now you're bringing them into either a discussion or a micro assignment where it's like a test your knowledge kind of concept. And it's allowing them to, again, familiarize themselves with the concept, explore it, and participate with their peers so that they're building that social context in their course. And really, that's, that's a cool thing because from a, an instructor's perspective, it gives you the ability to see, okay, um, this student seems knowledgeable of this because here in the discussion board they posted that they understood and and it really does seem like they're applying what they learned or they actually asked a question in the discussion board that has me wondering do they really grasp this or they, they seem to grasp maybe the first bit of it but they don't seem to grasp the second part of it. The other cool thing about discussion boards is that as your students become more knowledgeable it fosters this environment of collaboration where if one of them pops in with a question, you might not necessarily be the person who has to go in and answer it. There may be another person in the class who's comfortable with the material that can go in and answer the question for them. So they'll start to naturally build uh, support networks. And, and it also still gives you that bird's eye view of how is everybody feeling about the content. So what have we done in the module so far? We've titled it. We've added these subsections. We added the files and the content we wanted the students to kind of consume before they started viewing the lectures. And then we got them into the lecture. We added some additional content to support the lecture. And now we're bringing them into assignments that they can participate in in the class so that they can engage. I know it sounds like a lot of work, but trust me, it is really, really beneficial to students to have this kind of engagement because they aren't getting the face-to-face -face where they can ask you questions in real time. They're learning in a more asynchronous pattern. And so this is going to offer that support. And then if you do choose to move into the next lecture or portion of the lecture, you just do this all over again, you know, and so you can have the next part of the lecture, same kind of deal, they move through it, you provide additional content, they've got a micro assignment, and then maybe a discussion board. If you don't want to do a discussion every single time, that's cool. 
Um, that's totally up to you. If you don't want to do a micro assignment, that's also up to you. But what I do find is when students have those kinds of minor engagements that maybe don't impact their grade dramatically, um, you know, where they're getting just points for participation, it, it gives them a comfort level to at least engage and get a little familiar with the content so that that way when you get to the bigger asks, the big assignments, the big tests that are going to be worth a lot more, they're going to at least have that comfort level and they're going to have less of that freak out of, oh my gosh, it serves another purpose too. By having micro assignments, by having micro quizzes, by having discussions, again, that are more like, hey, these are just fun, you know, um, things to do that, that are going to get you more comfortable with the material. It also teaches them how to use the learning management system. So one of the things a lot of instructors do in that very first module is before they even begin with any of the content for their course, they have an icebreaker. And that icebreaker might be in the form of an assignment. Submit this kind of file with an image in it or whatever and introduce yourself and blah, blah, blah. And that allows the student to get comfortable with how do I submit an assignment? How do I upload a file? And that way, you can get some of those questions out of the way. So you can say, okay, I'm going to double check and make sure that the student is 100% comfortable with doing this before I ask them to do it with a real assignment. So that is a super fun way to get students engaged. Okay, so in our module, we've got this before you engage with the lecture section. Then we've got the actual lecture section that have breakdowns of assignments, uh, micro-assignments, discussions. And then we might want to have an after-lecture section, and that's where you're going to maybe put your assignments, the real big ones for big portions of the grades, the things that students are going to know, okay, I've got this due. So that way, again, as they're moving through the module, everything from a user experience and user interface perspective is a logical progression. So... The other cool thing that Canvas does is when you build a module, it has um, it has a next button that will appear when the user is moving through content in a module. So as I go into the module and I start on that very first page, it's going to have a next button. So when I'm done consuming the content of that first page, boom, I can move to the next page and the next page and the next page. So from a student perspective, I can easily navigate through an entire module from start to finish. And if you've laid your content out in a way that makes sense to me, I'm going to see those files I need to download, then move to the next pages, eventually get to the lectures that I'll use and implement those files for. And then I can go on to the next part. Um, which is going to be the micro assignments and the discussion boards. And then the final part might be some of the assignments. And one thing I have found uh, is super beneficial is when I get to that part of my module where I'm going to start actually asking the student to do things um, for assignments, one of the other things you might want to include is a page or two or maybe even a subsection that is review, like gives the students an idea of what they need to review, where they might want to go back and check things before they actually get into the assignment. And then you get to your assignments, your quizzes, whatever else you're going to give the students, and that is, again, checking their understanding. It's going to gauge how well they consume the content, how well they understand the content following their consumption of it, and it's also going to allow you to kind of see how easily they're moving through the course, how they're retaining information, and if you need to kind of reach out and see what's going on. 
So that's module construction. That is best practices from my perspective on how we can build effective modules and how we can really engage students in an online kind of modality. So we've talked the front and home page, we've talked the navigation bar, and we've talked building out those modules. If you've got any questions about these, if you've got any ideas, um, things that maybe I didn't cover here, check out the show notes. But I also encourage you to either shoot me an email at msgarcia at colin.edu. Again, that's msgarcia at colin.edu. I always like to tell that little joke so people will remember. Um, Or you can just hop into the online tools and strategies Microsoft team that we have here at Colin and just pop in with a question in the podcast channel. I will get to some mailbags. I'll do user feedback and user questions, and I can address some of those things in future podcasts. So this has been the best practices episode of the Colin College Academic Continuity Podcast. I am Mark Garcia. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to uh, building some more of these and hopefully hearing from you, getting feedback, and, and we'll see what topics and concepts we can explore in the future. All right, until then, always keep learning, always keep teaching, always keep improving.